0: Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. The following sermon was preached on August 6th, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. And it's an unusual sermon because it focuses on one verse, verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 4. And it includes strange words about the gospel being preached to those who are dead. What does that mean? I'm going to explore that question in this sermon. And as I'll say, as I'll argue in this sermon, it doesn't mean that even after death, people have an opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. No. It's clear from Scripture that the time to be saved is now, while we're living and breathing in this world. And Jesus has given us his great commission. And he expects us as Christians, as the church, to fulfill that commission. So I'm going to be talking about that in today's sermon. The scripture is, again, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. In one of the two sermons I preached last Sunday morning, I mentioned as I was talking about verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 4 that this was a very difficult verse, but that it was one of two very difficult verses in that scripture passage last week. And the other difficult verse was verse 6, and I didn't have time to go into it, last Sunday. So I decided, as I said in the email yesterday to y'all, that I was going to spend time in this sermon talking about the very difficult verse six. And then next week, we will look at the same passage. We'll look at verses seven through 11, and I will tackle another difficult verse, which is all about how we are living, Peter says, At the end of the age, at the end of all or near the end of all things, like what does that mean? Well, come back next week and we'll we'll figure that out. But today I'm going to be talking about verse six, which says the following. For this is why the gospel was preached to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The gospel was preached to those who are dead. What does that mean? Let me begin by talking about two things that it doesn't mean. Now, the first interpretation, lots of good Christian thinkers over the centuries have held, which is that Peter is referring to those who are spiritually dead. Um, And it's true that apart from a relationship with Christ, apart from a saving relationship with God through Christ, apart from being born again, there is a sense in which each one of us is spiritually dead. We become spiritually alive when we believe in Jesus. So, yeah, that that's certainly true, but that's not what. Peter is talking about here. We know this because if you turn your Bible and look at the verse five, which precedes verse six, um, you'll see that Peter has just referred to um, to the living and the dead. God judging the living and the dead. He's not going to turn around in the very next verse and use the dead in some figurative way when he's just used it to refer to people who are physically dead. When he says dead, he means physically dead okay but we still have this difficulty the gospel was preached to those who were physically dead is he saying is he saying that even people who are now dead can hear and respond to the gospel And possibly reverse the sentence of judgment so that even if they rejected God's gift of salvation in Christ when they were living and breathing, even if they're now in hell, they can get a second chance or a 200 and second chance or a 2 million and second chance, regardless of what they did when they were living in this world. Is that what Peter is saying? Now, I completely understand why many of us Christians want that to be the case. This idea of a second chance, even after death. We want that to be the case because then it wouldn't matter how faithfully we carried out Christ's great commission. Do you remember the great commission? Before he ascended to heaven, Jesus talked to his 11 disciples and actually a larger group of disciples as well in Matthew chapter 28. And he said these words, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And in the book of Acts in chapter one, he gives this commission in uh, different words to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. But it's the same commission. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Obviously, we present day disciples are no longer in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria. We are somewhere between there And the end of the earth. Yet we know that even in our particular corner of the earth, right here in Hampton, Georgia, and the surrounding area... Too many people, too many people are living their lives and dying, not having heard and responded to the gospel. Or even if they've heard it, they're unconvinced by it. Or even if they believe intellectually that the gospel is true, they haven't let that truth penetrate their hearts. And they're unconvinced that the gospel matters very much. To them, Or it should matter very much to them. And perhaps they look at the lives of some Christians they know and they think, well, it doesn't matter very much to these Christians. So why should it matter very much to me, even if intellectually I believe that it's true? Just last week, I had a dentist appointment. It was just a regular checkup. And um, for whatever reason, I'm friends with my dentist. Uh, We occasionally go to lunch and we have a lot in common. And uh, so we were chatting after my appointment and and he was telling me his life is uh, his life is in some turmoil right now. And he was telling me he's had a hard time finding a church home. And he said, Brent, I think I'm just going to be one of those people who goes to church on the major holidays, you know, Christmas and Easter. And so. Even though I live in Dunwoody, I'm going to I'm going to come down to your church at Hampton and, uh, you know, Christmas and Easter. And I hope that's OK. And I said, look, I would love for you to come and, and visit uh, our church and, and, you know, be sure to write a, a, a good check while you're here. Um, but <laughs> I would love for you to come and, and visit and you know hear me preach by all means. But I, I don't want you to be a CEO. And he didn't know what that meant. I said, you know, a CEO, a Christmas, Easter only kind of Christian. The world, the world has too many CEOs, and and uh, you know, we we need to be the kind of Christians that are just so in love with Jesus that we wouldn't miss an opportunity to worship Him and glorify Him every Sunday morning at a church somewhere. So please, please, by all means, find a church somewhere near where you live and. And, and go every week and, and then, you know, come down here on special occasions and, and write your tithe check for to us and we'll be happy to take it. No, um, I didn't say that, but, but, uh, but I, I did say that first part uh, about CEOs. Um, You know, other people, including, gosh, including his own children, are going to learn from him how important his Christian faith is. and, And what 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 are our own actions teaching others about how important Jesus is to us? If we rarely darken the door of a church, then we're communicating to our kids and to everyone else, to the rest of the world, that it doesn't really matter. You know, believing in Jesus doesn't make a big difference in our lives. We don't need to be those kinds of Christians And so um, anyway, just yesterday in a ceremony um, that was held in this sanctuary, some of you were here. um, Our very own uh, Jack Holiday, who's been active in our church and in our church's youth group, he received the rank of Eagle Scout in a special ceremony. And um, only about two percent, I learned, only about two percent of young men involved in scouting achieve the eagle scout uh, uh, st- status. It is a high honor. And a couple of times during the ceremony, some of the scout leaders said, Jack, you are now a marked man. For the rest of your life, they said, you're a marked man. Why? Why? Because for the rest of Jack's life, other people will look up to him as an Eagle Scout. They will look up to him and they will expect more from him because he's an Eagle Scout. And these words were so powerful and so emotional that as they spoke them, there were a few, uh, you know, few people who were tearing up. And many more people in this sanctuary who had a big lump in their throat as they were thinking about the responsibility that uh, that Jack was going to be uh, living up to. It was deeply moving. It moved me. Jack is now a marked man. I like that. Brothers and sisters. How can we communicate this same truth to the young people in our church, to the young people in our lives? For example, when they stand up here for confirmation. What if we said to them, do you know that by virtue of the commitment that you are making today, by by virtue of the promises that you are making today, by by virtue of the allegiance to our lord jesus christ that you are, are are promising today you are now a marked man or a marked woman first you're marked in the sense that you are sealed the bible says and set apart by the holy spirit which indicates that from this point forward, you are a child of God with a whole new set of responsibilities, including fulfilling this great commission. And whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, by virtue of this commitment that you're making today and, and your faith in Jesus Christ and His resurrection and the, all that God has done for you, you are enlisting As a soldier in an army to fight the most powerful enemy in our world, Satan himself. You are now fighting a spiritual war. So by pledging to take up your cross and follow Jesus, it's as if you now have a target on your back. Because Satan wants to do whatever he can to defeat you, to ensure that you won't be successful in fulfilling your duty, to ensure that many people that you know and love will not hear the gospel, will not repent of their sins and will not be saved. Now, in a couple of weeks in this sermon series, the last sermon I'll preach in this series, I'm going to be talking more about this spiritual warfare. And the power of Satan. My point now is that many people, too many people are dying apart from a saving relationship with God through Christ. And if Jesus words are true and we disciples have a God given commission and a God given responsibility to share the gospel with them in that through the power of the Holy Spirit we have the power to do that and to be successful, then we bear some responsibility, at least a small share, a small measure of responsibility for their eternal destiny. But I know it's easier not to think about this. I I, I know it's easier to tell ourselves, no, no, people will get a second chance even after they die, a second chance to be saved. And so we take verse six out of this context and we say the gospel was preached to the dead. See, it doesn't matter whether or not we're doing our job, fulfilling the great commission or doesn't matter whether we're effective or not. The gospel is going to be preached to the dead. And although we're not told who's doing the preaching, they're probably better at it than we are. So let's not worry too much about that. This is not a good interpretation of verse six, although it is a popular interpretation. First, notice that this preaching was done in the past tense. The gospel was preached grammatically. It is something that has already been accomplished, already been completed. It's not something that's going to be ongoing. It's not something that was done. It's going to be done in the future. It's a a finished work. Besides, in this context, Peter has been talking about how in their former life in paganism, these Christians used to take part in all kinds of sinful, idolatrous Behavior. And now, because of their obedience to Christ, they are no longer doing so. Many of their friends, their neighbors, their relatives have noticed the difference. And guess what? They don't like it. And they've been ridiculing these Christians and persecuting them, rejecting them, maligning them, Peter says. And one of the ways that they were maligning them was pointing to Christians they knew who are now dead. And saying, in so many words, what's the point? What's the point of alienating yourself from your friends, your neighbors, your relatives and Turning away from what Peter calls a life of sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What's the point if after making this dramatic break with your past life, you still end up dead just like everybody else? Is that how God rewards you for being righteous? What's the point? We all end up the same dead as a doornail. So why not just eat, drink, and be merry like everyone else? So this is what Peter is referring to in verse six. Christians who heard the gospel while they were alive, they repented and believed in Jesus, and now they're dead. To capture the spirit of this, Um, the NIV, which is a less literal translation than the ESV that we use, adds the word, it's not in the Greek, but it adds the word now. People who are now dead. They weren't dead when the gospel was preached to them. Now they are. Peter's point is that by all outward appearances, it seems like their Christian life was futile. After all, the Bible teaches That death itself is a a judgment against us because of our sin. And Christianity says our sins are forgiven, right? We're forgiven. We're accepted by God. Well, why do we die then? Why do we face physical death at all? I mean, these Christians are dead. Just like everybody else. Because of their sins. This is likely what Peter means when he says that they were judged in the flesh the way people are. Death itself is a judgment against sin and their faith in Christ didn't change the fact that they died. So Peter uh, might be talking about that kind of judgment, but he might also be referring to a judgment in a court of law um, because these Christians were faithful to Jesus and they faced persecution and even martyrdom because of it. They were sentenced to death. Peter himself, as I've said before, knows that he's facing a death sentence sometime in his future. Jesus told him so in John 21. We know this from church history, that sometime around A.D. 65, under the emperor Nero, Peter was crucified, just like Jesus possibly crucified upside down. But he was put to death because of his faith. So it could be that kind of judgment. Given that we face this kind of judgment, you know, why go to all the trouble? It must have looked um, to people who saw Peter being crucified, they must have thought, what's the point? Why did he bother to do all this? He's still dead. He could have just enjoyed himself while he was here instead of turning away from his sins and living for Christ. Christ. So that's, I think, what verse six, the first part of verse six means. But Peter also shares with us some good news from this verse. He says, while it's true that these Christians were judged in the flesh the way people are and they died as a result. They are actually still alive in the spirit and and they're alive, by the way, in a way that they they weren't alive when they were living and breathing in this world. They're experiencing a kind of life that they never were able to experience before. We don't know a lot about what heaven is going to be like, but we know that it's going to be incredible. And Christians who die get to experience heaven right away. And then at some point in the future when Christ returns... They will be resurrected and will have another kind of uh, life in heaven. But heaven is going to be amazing. And we experience, it. we who are in Christ experience it immediately when we die. We don't have to go and get punished in purgatory first. It happens, the Bible says, right away. When Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, he was struggling in prison. It was a harsh, brutal imprisonment. And Paul didn't know for sure whether he would survive. He says so in his letter, the first part of his letter. And he's torn. He says he's torn between living and dying. On the one hand, if he lives, then that means he gets to continue doing his missionary work and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's really good. But he says, if he dies, that's even better. Why? Because he gets Jesus face to face. He gets Heaven, he's looking forward to that, and that's that's going to be a great thing. We get a little picture. We got a little picture, I should say, of heaven last week. I want to share it with you. It was in the news, but before I do, I have to give you a little bit of history. I am guessing that maybe Tom knows this. Are you from the? Are you not from the South Side of Chicago? Are you Tom? No. So you're probably a Cubs fan. Okay. (laughs) On October 14th, 2003, a day that will live in infamy for Cubs fans, the Chicago Cubs were five outs away from winning their first National League pennant in 58 years. They had a three games to two lead over the Florida Marlins. And if they got five more outs in this game, they would go on to play in the World Series. They were a very good team. They might even win the World Series and, well, reverse that curse (laughs) that they had been dealing with since 1908. So um, in that eighth inning with five outs to go, a foul ball was hit into left field or near near left field um, to Moises Alou. Alou ran over to the sidelines to catch what would have been an easy second out. Only problem is there was a fan in the stands named Steve Bartman. And like so many fans, he wanted to catch a foul ball. Who could blame him? The problem is, By deflecting the ball, he prevented Moises Alou from making the catch, and it had been three to nothing at that point. The Cubs were winning, and by the end of that inning, it was eight to three, and the Cubs ended up losing that game, and they ended up losing the next game. I think the Marlins went on to win the World Series. Steve Bartman, meanwhile, was literally booed out of the stadium, and, I mean, his name was a byword among uh, fans of Chicago um, for many years after that, in fact, until last week. Because last week, you may remember the Cubs ended up winning the World Series, and I guess they distributed their World Series rings last week. Now, the owner of the Cubs gave a World Series ring to Steve Bartman. Had his name on it and everything. This diamond-encrusted, very expensive World Series ring. This was an unthinkable gesture. Unthinkably gracious unthinkably loving he presented steve bartman the most hated man in chicago cubs history with a world series ring steve bartman who had been one of the biggest goats in sports history because of what fans considered to be an unforgivable sin was now Treated like one of the heroes who won the World Series. What did Bartman do to deserve this honor? What did he do? Absolutely nothing. Does that sound familiar? This is, Peter says, the unseen reality of what happens to us Christians when we die. Because of our sins, we deserve nothing but death, nothing but God's wrath, nothing but hell. But God loved us too much to to leave us in that condition because God loved us and wanted to save us so much. He sent his son, Jesus, who died on a cross in order to make that happen. He showed us nothing but love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And because of this grace, God, the father now treats us Christians exactly the same way he treats his son as a hero instead of a goat, as the the biggest winner instead of the biggest loser. If we've repented of our sin and believed in Jesus, we are Steve Bartman. But, you know, even more so, And God is calling you and me and Hampton Methodist Church to go and find a bunch of other Steve Bartmans out there. To turn a bunch of losers into the biggest winners imaginable. To turn a bunch of goats into the greatest heroes. Just last week, a retired pastor in our conference named Warren Latham posted a complaint on Facebook. I'm a friend of his on Facebook. Warren, in case you don't know, was the pastor who grew Mount Pisgah UMC into a large megachurch back in the 80s. Uh, one of the most successful and effective Methodist pastors of his generation, for sure. And um, he, he talked about an experience uh, experiences that he's had on, on Facebook. And, and he said that now that he's retired from full-time pastoral ministry and because of some other ministry things that he's involved in, he gets to go around to different churches and preach and talk. And um, just like at our church, these churches that he goes to, they share prayer concerns, you know, um, during the prayer time. And he said that, well, not just now, but like throughout the his 50 years or so of pastoral ministry, he he would hear prayer requests for physical healings and physical safety, healing from sickness, healing from surgery, safety for childbirth, safety for police officers and soldiers. And he hears requests for comfort for people who are Dealing with the loss of loved ones who've died. And there's, there's nothing at all that's wrong with any of those prayer requests. We are commanded by our Lord to share those kinds of requests with one another. What, what's wrong is what is left unsaid. Because in his 50 years of pastoral ministry and his 70 years of Christian life in general, he said he has rarely, if ever, heard anyone say during these prayer times, I want to pray for my husband, my son, my daughter, my neighbor, my friend, my co-worker. Because they're lost and they need Jesus. They don't know Jesus They aren't saved. They're in need of spiritual healing, healing for their souls, the kind of healing that only the great physician can provide. And the danger that they're facing is far greater than the the danger faced even by people dealing with cancer, heart disease, natural disasters, war, physical violence. Why? Because the threat... That they're facing doesn't just kill the body, but sends the soul to hell. And if you've been paying attention to the message of first Peter so far in this series, then you know that Peter is writing to a group of Christians who've already decided that what happens to them physically through persecution or even martyrdom matters far less than their responsibility to fulfill Christ's great commission to be witnesses in this world. So let's not be fooled. God's Word tells us that what we do right now in this world makes a difference for eternity. And what we fail to do right now in this world also makes a difference for eternity. But make no mistake, if you If you believe in Jesus and you accept this mission, you accept this great commission, you will be a marked man or a marked woman. Are you still are you still willing to do it? Are you still willing to follow Jesus? That's. That's the question that we all need to answer. Almighty God, this is a difficult message. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would enable us to live it out. Live it out in the life of our family, in our homes. Live it out at work. Live it out at school. Live it out as we enjoy our hobbies and our extracurricular activities. Live it out as we're uh, dating. Live it out in our marriages. And live it out especially through our church here at Hampton Methodist. Enable us to be effective in fulfilling your great commission. Remind us of what's waiting on the other side of eternity. Remind us that it is going to be great. and that that is the source of our hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider joining us for worship at Hampton United Methodist Church, which is in downtown Hampton, Georgia, on West Main Street. We have two services. We have a nine o'clock acoustic contemporary service and an 11 o'clock traditional. Thanks, and I hope to see you there.